The Sleepy Bookshelf should have something for everyone. If we are missing your favourite story, you can vote for future books on our website, sleepybookshelf.com. Good evening, and welcome to The Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. As always, I'm Elizabeth, your host, and it's lovely to have you here with me. Tonight, we'll be returning again to the Hound of the Baskervilles. But before that, let's take some time to unwind and relax. Take a big stretch where you are and feel the tension release from your muscles. I recently learned this calming breath that I want to share with you now. We're going to breathe in through our nose for a count of four and out through our mouths for a count of eight. So, inhale through your nose for one, two, three, four. And now out through your mouth for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I hope you feel calmer now. You can use this breath whenever you're feeling stressed or overwhelmed throughout your day too and repeat as many times as you like. Now the last time we were together, the doorbell at Baker Street was ringing and the man who had been driving the cab containing Sir Henry's spy on Regent Street was standing on the front step. Holmes gave the man some money in exchange for information about the spy, but all they received in return was that he had a pale face, a full black beard, and he went by the name of Sherlock Holmes. The following Saturday, Watson met Sir Henry and Dr. Mortimer at Paddington Station, and they all set off for Devonshire together. After alighting the train and driving towards Baskerville Hall, they began noticing soldiers with rifles all about the countryside and were informed of a dangerous escaped prisoner on the loose. Baskerville Hall proved imposing and somewhat depressing on Sir Henry and Watson, and through the night, both men were disturbed by the howling sobs of a woman they could only deduce to be the housekeeper, Mrs. Barrymore. Though on inquiring with Mr. Barrymore, he assured them that could not be. Watson determined to find out if Barrymore was at all to be trusted and set out to visit the postmaster to find out if the telegram they sent from London that week had been directly passed to the butler himself as instructed. And so we pick back up tonight. Watson just finding out from the postmaster's son 
that he had not, in fact, handed the telegram to Mr. Barrymore himself. So, lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of The Hound of the Baskervilles. Chapter 7 continued. It seemed hopeless to pursue the inquiry any farther, but it was clear that in spite of Holmes's ruse, we had no proof that Barrymore had not been in London all the time. Suppose that it were so. Suppose that the same man had been the last who had seen Sir Charles alive and the first to dog the new heir when he returned to England. What then? Was he the agent of others, or had he some sinister design of his own? What interest could he have in persecuting the Baskerville family? I thought of the strange warning clipped out of the leading article of the Times. Was that his work? Or was it possibly the doing of someone who was bent upon counteracting his schemes? The only conceivable motive was that which had been suggested by Sir Henry, that if the family could be scared away, a comfortable and permanent home would be secured for the Barrymores. But surely such an explanation as that would be quite inadequate to account for the deep and subtle scheming which seemed to be weaving an invisible net round the young baronet. Holmes himself had said that no more complex case had come to him in all the long series of his sensational investigations. I prayed as I walked back along the grey, lonely road that my friend might soon be freed from his preoccupations and be able to come down to take this heavy burden of responsibility from my shoulders. Suddenly, my thoughts were interrupted by the sound of running feet behind me and a voice which called my name. I turned, expecting to see Dr. Mortimer, but to my surprise, it was a stranger who was pursuing me. He was a small, slim, clean-shaven, prim-faced man, flaxen-haired and lean-jawed, between thirty and forty years of age, dressed in a grey suit and wearing a straw hat. A tin box for botanical specimens hung over his shoulder, and he carried a green butterfly net in one of his hands. You will, I am sure, excuse my presumption, Dr. Watson, said he as he came panting up to where I stood. Here on the moor, we are homely folk and do not wait for formal introductions. You may possibly have heard my name from our mutual friend, Mortimer, 
I am Stapleton of Merripit House. Your net and box would have told me as much, said I, for I knew that Mr. Stapleton was a naturalist. But how did you know me? I have been calling on Mortimer, and he pointed you out to me from the window of his surgery as you passed, said he. As our road lay the same way, I thought that I would overtake you and introduce myself. I trust that Sir Henry is none the worse for his journey. He is very well, thank you, said I. We were all rather afraid that after the sad death of Sir Charles, the new baronet might refuse to live here, Stapleton said. This is asking much of a wealthy man to come down and bury himself in a place of this kind, but I need not tell you that it means a very great deal to the countryside. Sir Henry has, I suppose, no superstitious fears in the matter? Oh, I do not think that is likely, I answered. Of course you know the legend of the fiend dog which haunts the family, Stapleton inquired. I nodded. I have heard it. It is extraordinary how credulous the peasants are about here. Any number of them are ready to swear that they have seen such a creature upon the moor. He spoke with a smile, but I seemed to read in his eyes that he took the matter more seriously. The story took a great hold upon the imagination of Sir Charles, and I have no doubt that it led to his tragic end. But how? I asked. His nerves were so worked up that the appearance of any dog might have had a fatal effect upon his diseased heart, Stapleton said. I fancy that he really did see something of the kind upon that last night in the U Alley. I feared that some disaster might occur, for I was very fond of the old man, and I knew that his heart was weak. How did you know that? I asked. Well, my friend Mortimer told me, he answered. You think then, said I, that some dog pursued Sir Charles and that he died of fright in consequence? Stapleton shrugged. Have you a better explanation? I have not come to any conclusion, I said. Has Mr. Sherlock Holmes? He asked. The words took away my breath for an instant, but a glance at the placid face and steadfast eyes of my companion showed that no surprise was intended. It is useless for us to pretend that we do not know you, Dr. Watson, said he. The records of your detective have reached us here, and you could not celebrate him without being known yourself. When Mortimer told me your name, he could not deny your identity. If you were here, then it follows that Mr. Sherlock Holmes is interested himself in the matter. 
and I am naturally curious to know what view he might take. I'm afraid that I cannot answer that question, I said. May I ask if he is going to honor us with a visit himself? Asked Stapleton. He cannot leave town at present, said I. He has other cases which engage his attention. What a pity, said he. He might throw some light on that which is so dark to us. But as to your own researches, if there is any possible way in which I can be of service to you, I trust that you will command me. If I had any indication of the nature of your suspicions or how you propose to investigate the case, I might perhaps even now give you some aid or advice. I assure you that I am simply here upon a visit to my friend Sir Henry and that I need no help of any kind, I said. Excellent, said Stapleton. You're perfectly right to be wary and discreet. I am justly reproved for what I feel was an unjustifiable intrusion, and I promise you that I will not mention the matter again. We had come to a point where a narrow, grassy path struck off from the road and wound away across the moor. A steep, boulder-sprinkled hill lay upon the right, which had, in bygone days, been cut into a granite quarry. The face, which was turned towards us, formed a dark cliff with ferns and brambles growing in its niches. From over a distant rise, there floated a grey plume of smoke. A moderate walk along the moor path brings us to Merripit House, said he. Perhaps you will spare an hour that I may have the pleasure of introducing you to my sister. My first thought was that I should be by Sir Henry's side, but then I remembered the pile of papers and bills with which his table was littered. It was certain that I could not help with those, and Holmes had expressly said that I should study the neighbours upon the moor. I accepted Stapleton's invitation, and we turned together down the path. It's a wonderful place, the moor, said he, looking round over the undulating downs, long green rollers with crests of jagged granite foaming up into fantastic surges. You never tire of the moor. You cannot think the wonderful secrets which it contains. It is so vast and so barren, and so mysterious. You know it well, then, I inquired. I have only been here two years, said he. The residents would call me a newcomer. We came shortly after Sir Charles settled, but my tastes led me to explore every part of the country round, 
but I should think there are few men who know it better than I do. Is it hard to know? I asked. He nodded. Very hard. You see, for example, this great plain to the north here, with the strange hills breaking out of it. Do you observe anything remarkable about that? It would be a rare place for a gallop, I remarked. You would naturally think so, and the thought has cost several their lives before, he said. You notice those bright green spots scattered thickly over it? Yes, I said. They seem more fertile than the rest. Stapleton laughed. That is the great Grimpen Mire, said he. A false step yonder means death to man or beast. Even in dry seasons, it is a danger to cross it. But after these autumn rains, it is an awful place. And yet I can find my way to the very heart of it and return alive. It's a bad place, the great Grimpen Mire. And you say you can penetrate it? I asked. Yes, said he. There are one or two paths which a very active man can take. I have found them out. But why should you wish to go into such a horrible place? I said. Well, you see the hills beyond, he said, pointing. They are really islands, cut off on all sides by the impassable mire which has crawled around them in the course of years. That is where the rare plants and the butterflies are, if you have the wit to reach them. I shall try my luck someday, I remarked. He looked at me with a surprised face. For God's sake, put such an idea out of your mind, said he. Your blood would be upon my head, and I assure you that there would not be the least chance of your coming back alive. It is only by remembering certain complex landmarks that I am able to do it. Suddenly, I heard a noise in the distance. What is that? I cried. A long, low moan, indescribably sad, swept over the moor. It filled the whole air and yet it was impossible to say whence it came. From a dull murmur, it swelled into a deep roar, and then sank back into a melancholy, throbbing murmur once again. Stapleton looked at me with a curious expression in his face. Strange place, the more, said he. But what is it? I asked. The peasants say it is the hound of the Baskervilles calling for its prey, said he. I have heard it once or twice before, 
but never quite so loud. I looked round with a chill of fear in my heart at the huge, swelling plain mottled with the green patches of rushes. Nothing stirred over the vast expanse, save for a pair of ravens which croaked loudly from a tor behind us. When you are an educated man, you don't believe such nonsense as that, said I. What do you think is the cause of so strange a sound? Bogs make strange noises sometimes, said he. It's the mud settling, or the water rising, or something. No, no, I said, shaking my head. That was a living voice. Well, perhaps it was, he shrugged. Did you ever hear a bittern booming? No, I never did, said I. It is a very rare bird, practically extinct in England now, but all things are possible upon the moor, he remarked. Yes, I should not be surprised to learn that what we have heard is the cry of the last of the bitterns. It is the weirdest, strangest thing that I have ever heard in my life, I said. Yes, it's rather an uncanny place altogether, said he. Look at the hillside yonder. What do you make of those? The whole steep slope was covered with grey, circular rings of stone, a score of them at least. What are they? I asked. Sheep pens? No, they are the homes of our worthy ancestors, said he. Prehistoric men lived thickly on the moor, and as no one in particular has lived there since, we find all his little arrangements exactly as he left them. These are his houses with the roofs off. You can even see his hearth and his couch if you have the curiosity to go inside. But it is quite a town, said I. When was it inhabited? Stapleton shook his head. Neolithic man, no date. He grazed his cattle on these slopes, and he learned to dig for tin when the bronze sword began to supersede the stone axe. Look at the great trench in the opposite hill. That is his mark. Yes, you will find some very singular points about the moor, Dr. Watson. Oh, excuse me an instant. It is surely cyclopedes. A small fly or moth had fluttered across our path, and in an instant, Stapleton was rushing with extraordinary energy and speed in pursuit of it. To my dismay, the creature flew straight for the great mire. My acquaintance never paused for an instant, bounding from tuft to tuft behind it, his green net waving in the air, 
His grey clothes and jerky, zigzag, irregular progress made him not unlike some huge moth himself. I was standing, watching his pursuit with a mixture of admiration for his extraordinary activity and fear lest he should lose his footing in the treacherous mire when I heard the sound of steps and, turning round, I found a woman near me upon the path. She had come from the direction in which the plume of smoke indicated the position of Maripit House. But the dip of the moor had hid her until she was quite close. I could not doubt that this was the Miss Stapleton of whom I had been told, since ladies of any sort must be few upon the moor, and I remembered that I had heard someone describe her as being a beauty. The woman who approached me was certainly that, and of a most uncommon type. There could not have been a greater contrast between brother and sister, for Stapleton was neutral-tinted, with light hair and grey eyes, while she was darker than any brunette woman whom I have seen in England, slim, elegant, and tall. She had a proud, finely cut face, so regular that it might have seemed impassive were it not for the sensitive mouth and the beautiful, dark, eager eyes. With her perfect figure, and excellent dress, she was, indeed, a strange apparition upon a lonely moorland path. Her eyes were turned on her brother as I turned, and then she quickened her pace towards me. I had raised my hat and was about to make some explanatory remark when her own words turned all my thoughts into a new channel. Go back, she said. Go straight back to London, instantly. I could only stare at her in stupid surprise. Her eyes blazed at me, and she tapped the ground impatiently with her foot. Why should I go back? I asked. I cannot explain. She spoke in a low, eager voice. But for God's sake, do what I ask you. Go back and never set foot upon the moor again. But I have only just come, said I. Man, can you not tell when a warning is for your own good? She said. Go back to London. Start tonight. Get away from this place at all costs. Hush, my brother is coming. Not a word of what I have said. Would you mind getting that orchid for me among the mare's tails yonder? We are very rich in orchids on the moor, though. Of course, you are rather late to see the beauties of the place. Stapleton had abandoned the chase and came back to us, 
breathing hard and flushed with his exertions. Hello, Beryl, said he, and it seemed to me that the tone of his greeting was not altogether a cordial one. Well, Jack, you are very hot, said she. Yes, I was chasing a cyclopedes. He's very rare and seldom found in the late autumn. What a pity that I should have missed him. He spoke unconcernedly, but his small, light eyes glanced incessantly from the girl to me. You have introduced yourselves, I can see, he remarked. Yes, said she. I was telling Sir Henry that it was rather late for him to see the true beauties of the moor. Why, who do you think this is? her brother asked. I imagine that it must be Sir Henry Baskerville, she answered. No, no, said I. Only a humble commoner, but his friend. My name is Dr. Watson. A flush of vexation passed over her expressive face. We have been talking at cross purposes, said she. Why, you had not very much time for talk, her brother remarked with the same questioning eyes. I talked as if Dr. Watson were a resident instead of being merely a visitor, said she. It cannot much matter to him whether it is early or late for the orchids. But you will come on, will you not, and see Merripit House? A short walk brought us to it. A bleak, moorland house, once the farm of some grazier in the old prosperous days, but now put into repair and turned into a modern dwelling. An orchard surrounded it, but the trees, as is usual upon the moor, were stunted and nipped, and the effect of the whole place was mean and melancholy. We were admitted by a strange, wizened, rusty-coated old manservant who seemed in keeping with the house. Inside, however, there were large rooms furnished with an elegance in which I seemed to recognize the taste of the lady. As I looked from their windows at the interminable granite-flecked moor rolling unbroken into the farthest horizon, I could not but marvel at what could have brought this highly educated man and this beautiful woman to live in such a place. Strange spot to choose, is it not? said he, as if in answer to my thought. And yet, we manage to make ourselves fairly happy, do we not, Beryl? Quite happy, said she, but there was no ring of conviction in her words. I had a school, said Stapleton. It was in the North Country. The work to a man of my temperament was mechanical and uninteresting, but the privilege of living with youth 
of helping to mould those young minds and of impressing them with one's own character and ideals was very dear to me. However, the fates were against us. A serious epidemic broke out in the school and three of the boys died, but never recovered from the blow and much of my capital was irretrievably swallowed up. And yet, if it were not for the loss of the charming companionship of the boys, I could rejoice over my own misfortune. For with my strong tastes for botany and zoology, I find an unlimited field of work here, and my sister is as devoted to nature as I am. All this, Dr. Watson, has been brought upon your head by your expression as you surveyed the moor out of our window. It certainly did cross my mind that it might be a little dull. Less for you, perhaps, than for your sister, said I. No, no, I am never dull, she said quickly. We have books. We have our studies, and we have interesting neighbors. Dr. Mortimer is a most learned man in his own line. Poor Sir Charles was also an admirable companion. We knew him well, and miss him more than I can tell, said he. Do you think that I should intrude if I were to call this afternoon and make the acquaintance of Sir Henry? I'm sure that he would be delighted, I told him. Well, then perhaps you would mention that I propose to do so, said he. We may, in our humble way, do something to make things more easy for him until he becomes accustomed to his new surroundings. Will you come upstairs, Dr. Watson, and inspect my collection of Lepidoptera? I think it is the most complete one in the southwest of England. By the time that you have looked through them, lunch will be almost ready. But I was eager to get back to my charge. The melancholy of the moor and the weird sound which had been associated with the grim legend of the Baskervilles, these things tinged my thoughts with sadness. Then, on the top of these more or less vague impressions, there had come the definite and distinct warning of Miss Stapleton, delivered with such intense earnestness that I could not doubt that some grave and deep reason lay behind it. I resisted all pressure to stay for lunch, and I set off at once upon my return journey taking the grass-grown path by which we had come. It seems, however, that there must have been some shortcut for those who knew it, for before I had reached the road, I was astounded to see Miss Stapleton sitting upon a rock by the side of the track. Her face was beautifully flushed with her exertions, and she held her hand to her side, I have run all the way in order to cut you off, Dr. Watson, said she. I had not even time to put on my hat. 
I must not stop, or my brother will miss me. I wanted to say to you how sorry I am about the stupid mistake I made in thinking that you were Sir Henry. Please, forget the words I said, which have no application whatever to you. But I cannot forget them, Miss Stapleton, said I. I am Sir Henry's friend, and his welfare is a very close concern of mine. Tell me why it was that you were so eager that Sir Henry should return to London. A woman's whim, Dr. Watson, said she. When you know me better, you will understand that I cannot always give reasons for what I say or do. No, no, I remember the thrill in your voice. I remember the look in your eyes, said I. Please, please be frank with me, Miss Stapleton. For ever since I have been here, I have been conscious of shadows all around me. Life has become like that great Grimpen mire with little green patches everywhere into which one may sink and with no guide to point the track. Tell me, then, what it was that you meant, and I will promise to convey your warning to Sir Henry. An expression of irresolution passed for an instant over her face, but her eyes hardened again when she answered me. You make too much of it, Dr. Watson, said she. My brother and I were very much shocked by the death of Sir Charles. We knew him very intimately for his favorite walk was over the moor to our house. He was deeply impressed with the curse which hung over the family, and when this tragedy came, I naturally felt that there must be some grounds for the fears which he had expressed. I was distressed, therefore, when another member of the family came down to live here, and I felt that he should be warned of the danger which he will run. That was all which I intended to convey. But what is the danger? I asked. You know of the story of the hound? She inquired. I nodded. I do not believe in such nonsense. But I do, said she. If you have any influence with Sir Henry, take him away from a place which has always been fatal to his family. The world is wide. Why should he wish to live at the place of danger? Because it is the place of danger. That is Sir Henry's nature, I told her. I fear that unless you can give me some more definite information than this, it would be impossible to get him to move. I cannot say anything definite for I do not know anything definite, said she. I would ask one more question, Miss Stapleton, said I. If you meant no more than this when you first spoke to me, why should you not wish your brother to overhear what you said? There is nothing to which he or anyone else could object. My brother is very anxious to have the hall inhabited, for he thinks it is for the good of the poor folk upon the moor, said she. He would be very angry if he knew that I have said anything which might induce Sir Henry to go away. 
But I have done my duty now, and I will say no more. I must go back, or he will miss me and suspect I have seen you. Goodbye. She turned and had disappeared in a few minutes among the scattered boulders, while I, with my soul full of vague fears, pursued my way to Baskerville Hall. Chapter 8 First Report of Dr. Watson From this point onward, I will follow the course of events by transcribing my own letters to Mr. Sherlock Holmes, which lie before me on the table. One page is missing, but otherwise they are exactly as written and show my feelings and suspicions of the moment more accurately than my memory, clear as it is upon these tragic events, can possibly do. Baskerville Hall, October 13th My dear Holmes, My previous letters and telegrams have kept you pretty well up to date as to all that has occurred in this most God-forsaken corner of the world. The longer one stays here, the more the spirit of the moor sinks into one's soul. Its vastness and also its grim charm. When you are at once out upon its bosom, you have left all traces of modern England behind you. But on the other hand, You are conscious everywhere of the homes and the work of the prehistoric people. On all sides of you as you walk are the houses of these forgotten folk, with their graves and the huge monoliths which are supposed to have marked their temples. As you look at their grey stone huts against the scarred hillsides, you leave your own age behind you. The strange thing is that they should have lived so thickly on what must have always been a most unfruitful soil. I am no antiquarian, but I could imagine that they were some unwarlike and harried race who were forced to accept that which none other would occupy. All this, however, is foreign to the mission on which you sent me and will probably be very uninteresting to your severely practical mind. I can still remember your complete indifference as to whether the sun moved round the earth or the earth round the sun. Let me, therefore, return to the facts concerning Sir Henry Baskerville. If you have not had any report within the last few days, it is because up to today there was nothing of importance to relate. Then a very surprising circumstance occurred, which I shall tell you in due course. But first of all, I must keep you in touch with some of the other factors in the situation. One of these, concerning which I have said little, is the escaped convict upon the moor. There is strong reason now to believe that he has got right away, 
which is a considerable relief to the lonely householders of this district. A fortnight has passed since his flight, during which he has not been seen and nothing has been heard of him. It is surely inconceivable that he could have held out upon the moor during all that time. Of course, so far as his concealment goes, there is no difficulty at all. Any one of these stone huts would give him a hiding place, but there is nothing to eat unless he were to catch and slaughter one of the moor sheep. We think, therefore, that he has gone, and the outlying farmers sleep the better in consequence. We are four able-bodied men in this household, so that we could take good care of ourselves. But I confess that I have had uneasy moments when I have thought of the Stapletons. They live miles from any help. There are one maid, an old man-servant, the sister, and the brother, the latter not a very strong man. They would be helpless in the hands of a desperate fellow like this Notting Hill criminal if he could once effect an entrance. Both Sir Henry and I were concerned at their situation, and it was suggested that Perkins, the groom, should go over to sleep there, but Stapleton would not hear of it. The fact is that our friend, the baronet, begins to display a considerable interest in our fair neighbour. It is not to be wondered at, for time hangs heavily in this lonely spot to an active man like him, and she is a very fascinating and beautiful woman. There is something exotic about her which forms a singular contrast to her cool and unemotional brother, yet he also gives the idea of hidden fires. He has certainly a very marked influence over her, for I have seen her continually glance at him as she talked, as if seeking approbation for what she said. I trust that he is kind to her. There is a dry glitter in his eyes and a firm set of his thin lips, which goes with a positive and possibly a harsh nature. You would find him an interesting study. He came over to call upon Baskerville on that first day, and the very next morning he took us both to show us the spot where the legend of the wicked Hugo is supposed to have had its origin. It was an excursion of some miles across the moor to a place which is so dismal that it might have suggested the story. We found a short valley between rugged tors which led to an open, grassy space, flecked over with the white cotton grass. In the middle of it rose two great stones, worn and sharpened at the upper end until they looked like huge, corroding fangs of some monstrous beast. In every way, it corresponded with the scene of the old tragedy. Sir Henry was much interested, 
and asked Stapleton more than once whether he did really believe in the possibility of the interference of the supernatural in the affairs of men. He spoke lightly, but it was evident that he was very much in earnest. Stapleton was guarded in his replies, but it was easy to see that he said less than he might and that he would not express his whole opinion out of consideration for the feelings of the baronet. He told us of similar cases where families had suffered from some evil influence, and he left us with the impression that he shared the popular view upon the matter. On our way back, we stayed for lunch at Merripit House, and it was there that Sir Henry made the acquaintance of Miss Stapleton. From the first moment that he saw her, he appeared to be strongly attracted by her, and I am much mistaken if the feeling was not mutual. He referred to her again and again on our walk home, and since then hardly a day has passed that we have not seen something of the brother and sister. They dine here tonight, and there is some talk of our going to them next week. One would imagine that such a match would be very welcome to Stapleton, and yet I have more than once caught a look of the strongest disapprobation in his face when Sir Henry has been paying some attention to his sister. He is much attached to her, no doubt, and would lead a lonely life without her. But it would seem the height of selfishness if he were to stand in the way of her making so brilliant a marriage. Yet, I am certain that he does not wish their intimacy to ripen into love, and I have several times observed that he has taken pains to prevent them from being tete-a-tete. By the way, your instructions to me to never allow Sir Henry to go out alone will become very much more onerous if a love affair were to be added to our other difficulties. My popularity would soon suffer if I were to carry out your orders to the letter.